or third grader or younger, we have Children's Church for you. So if you want to follow your teachers out to your classrooms and head for Children's Church. Father, allow us yet again an opportunity to see the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Allow us to see our need for Him and our guiltiness. And allow us to therefore be fitting worshipers of You, the one true living God. As the psalmist would say, we say, open our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things from Your Word. In Jesus' name, Amen. This morning we're going to be in Luke chapter 10, talking about the Good Samaritan. So if you have a Bible, I'll invite you to join me in finding Luke 10. A familiar passage to most people, not just Christians, or at least a familiar concept, the Good Samaritan. And we're going to be talking about that person and that story that Jesus tells this morning. Countless, countless good things have borne the title Good Samaritan, right? Hospitals, charities, schools, ministries, churches, equality causes... There are Good Samaritan laws, there are Good Samaritan awards. Uh, it's even, it's considered a philosophy, the philosophy of Good Samaritanism. And it's one we, we pretty much all understand. It's, it's where you show kindness towards someone, even if they're not like you. Uh, you show generosity towards someone, uh, even if there's someone who uh, not only is not like you in appearance or religion, or maybe they're actually... Uh, antagonistic against you. And so we're supposed to be good Samaritans, and that means we'll show kindness and generosity uh, to everyone, no matter what. It's a good philosophy. I'm thankful for good Samaritan laws. I'm thankful for good Samaritan causes. I don't know who wouldn't be thankful for these things. And most people know this comes from the Bible. What most people don't know is the bigger context and why Jesus teaches this teaching about the Good Samaritan. And that's what we're going to experience this morning, and it's going to be exciting. We're going to learn about the philosophy of Good Samaritanism, but more importantly, we're going to see it in its bigger context so that we can see the point Jesus is really getting at, the bigger point... And it might shock us a little bit, but sometimes shocking is exciting. And I hope what happens is it causes us to see Christ even more clearly than we had before. And it causes us to leave here worshiping Him more earnestly than when we came here. Let's begin by reading the text itself. So if you would, Luke chapter 10, verse 29 to, 29 to 37, we're going to look at. He's talking to a Jewish expert in the law. He's an expert in Jewish law. And he says to that man in verse 29, but in, or it says, but he, that Jewish law expert, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. A common journey, somewhat dangerous, but common about 17 miles. Let's keep going. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Verse 33 says, but a Samaritan, 
as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed mercy, showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Pretty familiar territory. But to grasp its significance, hopefully at least a little better, maybe a whole lot better, let's ask and answer five questions related to this passage. Five questions that will help us to see it for what Jesus meant it to be seen as. If you want to follow my train of thought this morning, that's what we're going to do. Five questions that will help us to grasp the significance of this teaching from Jesus. We'll start with a really basic one. Number one, who's the hero of the story? Now, I have, I'm kind of notorious for asking trick questions. Um, I'm not trying to ask a trick question. Okay? Who, who's the standout? class. It's the Samaritan. It's a pretty obvious one. So you should all feel good about yourselves. You know, we're all, we're all Bible scholars at this point in time. Well, you know who the obvious hero is. We know the, who the standout is. The standout is the Samaritan. The Samaritan is commended. Back in verse 31, you have the priest, who, who the Jewish legal expert would think would be the standout, but it's not him. Verse 32, you have the Levite, another Jewish individual who you think would be the standout if it went the way the legal expert would want it to go. But no, verse 33, it's a Samaritan who has, at the end of verse 33, compassion. And then, uh, clearly, he is named in verse 37, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. The Samaritan is the undeniable standout. Maybe we're reading a little bit too much into it, but isn't it interesting that the religious leader, the Jewish law expert, when he was asked, who, who's the hero? It's like he can't make himself say Samaritan. <laughs> maybe I'm reading too much into it, but, but maybe not. It's the one who showed compassion. It's the one who showed mercy. It's very obvious who the standout hero of the story is, and it is none other than the Samaritan. What's ironic about that? Here's where most people don't know the answer to that. You probably do if you've read the Bible very much at all. If you know anything about biblical history, if you know anything about religious history, you say, this is so ironic. The Samaritan's the hero of the story? The reason it's so ironic, let me bring everybody up to speed. If you don't know anything about Samaritans, Samaritans were the bad guys. They weren't just playing for a different team. They're playing for the opposing team. Okay, uh, To put it in our kind of vernacular, they're not just part of a different denomination. They're part of a different religion. To put it a different way, if we were speaking in our terms today, we would say the Samaritans are part of a cult, is what they're a part of. Let's think about what the Samaritans 
did to earn that kind of title. Samaritans, and here's where cults always find themselves uh, first and foremost, had a different authority than the Jews had. Cults either add two books of the Bible or they take away portions of the Bible. And the Samaritans severely stripped the Old Testament. And so they denied all kinds of biblical revelation. Step one toward being part of a cult. You have a different authority base. Step two, with the different authority base... There's another problem that goes on. Samaritans rejected Jerusalem as the place where the temple should be for worship. That doesn't seem like a big deal to us. Think Old Testament world, Old Covenant world. God has prescribed in His revelation that they're denying that there should be a temple. And the temple should be in in Zion. It should be in Jerusalem. Well, the Samaritans said, we don't think so. We are going to have our own place of worship on a different mountain. And it doesn't seem like a big deal to us. But if if you read your Old Testament, you go, this is a huge big deal. Uh, Again, we don't think in these terms, but most certainly in the Old Testament, they think in terms of the temple is where you have a relationship with God. I mean, if you're cut off from the temple, then then, then you're cut off from that, that, that intimacy with God. Oh, let's build upon that further. At that temple is where what happens? Among other things, sacrifices happen. God's prescribed way in the Old Covenant of dealing with guilt and dealing with sin. Uh, God's prescribed way of, of having atonement. And the Pharisee, or excuse me, and the Samaritans, by saying no to Jerusalem, no to the right temple, are in effect saying no to atonement, to genuine atonement. This is a huge problem. And we're not really going to, to see the scandalousness of the, of the parable unless we understand some of these things. Then Jesus, in John chapter 4, makes it very clear that the Samaritans are in the spiritual dark. Now, please understand, Jesus is nice to the Samaritan woman. Nice enough to tell her the truth. And he says in John chapter 4, verse 22, You, you Samaritans, worship what you do not know. That's really pointed. You worship what you do not know. There's, there's an Old Testament word for that. It's called idolatry. You worship what you don't know. We talking about the Jews, worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. So without without any question, when we're talking about a Samaritan, we're talking about somebody who who is opposed to, somebody who's on the outside, somebody who's an an antagonist to, to the Jews. And then, not too long ago in our study of Luke, we're studying through the gospel according to Luke now, in case you're just joining us. Luke chapter 9, verses 51 to 56. I won't read the entire section, but in Luke 9... Jesus goes to a Samaritan town, and because Jesus is headed toward Jerusalem as the Savior, the promised Messiah, the Samaritans reject Him. They're just being Samaritans. So they're Messiah rejectors. They're Jesus rejectors. That's where the disciples, if you remember back in chapter 9, they're like, you know, they've got this new new power, this supernatural power, and they're like, okay, Lord, should we just smoke them right here? And Jesus rebukes His disciples and says, no. 
But make no mistake about it, they're Messiah rejectors. Jesus isn't putting his stamp of approval on them. We know that based upon John chapter 4. I'm making a big deal out of this because we need to at least be brought up to speed with our biblical literacy. For Jesus to say, the hero of the story here is a Samaritan. You go, what? Scandalous. Ironic. And especially if you're that Jewish individual who knows the law of God. Samaritan? How dare he do this? Samaritans are part of a false religion. Well, with that in mind, let's go to another question. What's the meaning of the story? Or excuse me, what's the message of the story? What's the message of the story? Pretty straightforward, right? The message of the story, the basic message of the story, verse 37, Jesus said, you go and do likewise. The Samaritan showed compassion toward his theological enemies, his religious enemies. The Samaritan was good and showed goodness to people he wasn't like and who were opposed to him. And so, the point is, it's good to be good. Right? It's scandalous that, you know, if I were a Jewish person, I might like it if, if the Samaritan was the hurt one. And, and, the, and the Levite or the priest showed compassion. No, it's turned. The Samaritan is the one who does the right thing. This is a super important passage for us in our Christian ethics, in our understanding of how we're to carry ourselves, isn't it? As we look at a whole Bible theology of things and we say, well, this makes sense because people are made in the image of God. And even though that image has been contorted and distorted because of sin, people are still image bearers. That's why it's an eye for an eye in the Old Testament, even after the fall. And and there's something valuable. There's an inherent dignity to human beings that make them unique from all other creation. And so this is super important when it comes to our, our ethics. Anytime there's a discussion about how Christians should act toward people who aren't Christians, this passage is going to be one of the first ones we go to, right? So you, you and I have people different from us. We have theological enemies. We have sociological enemies. We have people who are unlike us. But here, in particular, different religion. So what do we do? How do we carry ourselves? I think it's totally and completely legitimate to go to this passage, to learn from Jesus. You're supposed to love your neighbor. Who's your neighbor? Anybody who has a need. Doesn't matter who they are. Doesn't matter if they don't look like me. Doesn't matter if they don't believe like me. It's good to be good. So be good. On, on its surface, that's, that's the gist of it. With a strange twist, because we're learning from a Samaritan of all people. So we have paintings and sculptures and poetry and films and hospitals and laws and organizations. And we can all be thankful. We can all be thankful for the philosophy of Samaritanism. Be a good Samaritan. Speaking of ethics, though. If we stop there, I think we'd be unethical. If we stop right here and say, that's all there is to learn from the Samaritan story that Jesus tells, I think we're unethical. And you know why? 
Because we're taking this passage and ignoring the context that it's in. We're taking what Jesus intended to be in a context, we're removing it from that context, and we're building a whole philosophy isolated from its intent, and it's Jesus' intent, and now we're making it prove our agenda. And here's the tragedy, friends. This happens all the time. It happens all over and over and over and over again. We read this passage outside of its context, and there might be good that comes as a result. But if we just leave it there, it's not, that's not, that's not a, a good, true Christian ethic. And so that's why I'm excited this morning, while we're going to look at it in its context. I'm a huge one to say you can make the Bible say anything. And sometimes my unbelieving friends go, yeah, that's right. So what, what makes you think you're right? Oh, I'm not done with my statement. <laughs> you can make the Bible say anything. But not in context. And we need to read this in context. Question number three. Here's where some of the shock value comes in. What's the purpose of the story? What's the greater purpose of the story? What's the contextual purpose of the story? What's its ultimate message? If the, if the immediate simple message is, it's good to be good, it's good to show goodness to everybody no matter what, what why is it in here? What's the ultimate purpose? What's the bigger concept? What, what's the bigger context involved here that we really, 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 really don't want to miss? Let's go ahead and see. So badly want you to see this. Look what it says. Back to verse 25. Verse 25 is our context. We've looked at this in detail in recent days. Look what it says there. And behold, a lawyer, that's that legal expert in Jewish law, stood up to put Jesus, him, to the test saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That's the context because he's the one engaging Jesus. And what's the bigger issue involved? The bigger issue than it's good to be good is the ultimate issue that everybody grapples with, even if they say they're not grappling with it, it's the ultimate issue of what's the ultimate meaning in life? How do I gain eternal life? That's the context, and now we better make sure we read it in its context. Then verse 26 says, He said to him, What is written in the law? Jesus says that to the law expert, knowing full well what he's going to say when he says, How do you read it? Verse 27, And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. That's our context. What does it take to gain eternal life? Obedience to the law. Perfect obedience to the law. And we talked about that last time in some detail. Then verse 29. Okay, let's keep it in the context. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And then Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. Desiring to justify himself. Uh, justify is the word, saying, uh, it's the concept of being declared righteous. It's a law word. You know what? I can keep the law. The law says love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. I'm going to make sure that I'm righteous in and of myself before this God. And uh, tell me, who's my neighbor so I can do this? 
That's the context. Super important that we see it that way. Then, by the way, drop down to verse 37 just to see the connectedness. Um, He said, the one who showed him mercy. That's the one who's the hero. But then notice what Jesus says. And he said to him, you go and do likewise. You might want to put your finger on verse 37. You go and do likewise. That sounds a lot like the end of 28. Do this and you will live. Do this and you will live. Do the law and you will live. You go and do likewise. He's saying it a different way, but he's essentially saying the same thing. The purpose of the Good Samaritan story in its context is to talk about how to gain eternal life. How do you gain eternal life? By keeping the law of God. That's how you gain eternal life. You go and do this, and you'll gain eternal life. Pharisee, or excuse me, the, 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 the religious leader is like, okay, help me flesh it out. Who's my neighbor? Jesus chooses a Samaritan, scandalous, pagan, cult member, unbeliever, who does, at least on occasion, on this occasion, in this story, he does the right thing. He does the right thing. Well, that is, that, that, that is hugely offensive because they're the bad guys who play for the opposition. What's the purpose of all of this? The purpose of all this in its context, no doubt, is to show and to help this man, this Jewish legal expert, to see that he's a lawbreaker. Please follow me on this. He's a lawbreaker. And how can I show you that you're a lawbreaker, Mr. Self-Righteous? I want to justify myself. Tell me who my neighbor is. I'll tell you who your neighbor is. Through an illustration with a Samaritan who does the right thing, a right thing that you would never think about doing. You see? You would never do what that Samaritan did. You think you're so good. You think you're so righteous. You think you're such a morally upstanding citizen. The Samaritan does the right thing, and it's the kind of thing you would never in a million years think about doing. Point being, the Samaritan story shows the Jewish man his guilt. Shows him his guilt. It's got to be the ultimate point. Let me show you that pagans do right things that you refuse to do, in other words. These are things you should do and you won't do them. It's designed to show him his guilt. It's designed to show him that he hasn't kept the law. He's self-deluded think he's going to justify himself. Let's even look at the most rank, detestable enemy of the Jews, so to speak, and use them to show you your guiltiness. I don't want to go too far from this, but but if you think about somebody who you think is most antagonistic in your Christian experience to true biblical Christianity... we could find them doing some right things on occasion. Better than you do on occasion. 
If the standard is perfection, it's going to show that you don't meet the standard. And we can even prove the point by pointing out how pagans sometimes do a better job than you do. It's devastating. I would suggest to you that in context, the purpose of the Good Samaritan story or parable or account is to expose this man's guiltiness. It's to expose him as a lawbreaker. He's boasting in law-keeping. It's to expose him as a lawbreaker. The lawyer was thinking he was doing pretty well. Jesus creates a story to show him that he does not and will not meet the standard. I don't want to redo everything from last week, but Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Matthew chapter 5. We don't meet that requirement. We don't meet that requirement. Then we can look to the Old Testament, Psalm 14. No one does good, no not one in an ultimate sense. Romans chapter 3, quoting Psalm 14. No one does good, no not one in a true, genuine, ultimate sense. We could go to Mark chapter 10 where Jesus says, No one is good except God alone. Guilty. Guilty. This guy's guilty. He's guilty. Disqualified from eternal life if he's guilty, right? If he doesn't obey the law of God perfectly, he doesn't gain eternal life. Jesus is exposing him, even using somebody from a different religion who does a better job than he does at keeping the moral law of God. Next question, who gains eternal life? Who gains eternal life? Well, I guess we've already answered it. This is number four, but we already know who gains eternal life. The one who keeps the law. That's from verses 25 and following. Got to keep the law to gain eternal life. So who in our story meets the requirement? The Jew? The Jew doesn't meet the requirement. The Samaritan is the Samaritan meet the requirement of perfection? No. No. Maybe according to evangelical pop culture where we have good Samaritan, good Samaritan, good Samaritan, good Samaritan. I'm going to call my sermon the good bad Samaritan. Because Samaritans by definition are bad. They're bad. They're, they're, They're cult members. They don't keep the law because they don't even affirm the whole law. They're, they're problematic on all sorts of occasions. They're writing off huge portions of Scripture, denying Jesus as the Messiah, denying the centrality of the temple. They're not keeping the law perfectly. Oh yes, absolutely. On, a, on this occasion, this guy did the right thing. But if, but if to gain eternal life, you have to keep the law, love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, they don't even know who God is. The God they worship is not the true God, according to John chapter 4. So... The Jewish guy's disqualified. That's the obvious point. Then we get a little fuzzy and we think somehow the Samaritan's qualified. Well, we just forget about what Samaritanism is. He's not qualified either. This is, this is to show the guiltiness. Who meets the qualification? Now, I don't want to, I, I don't want to downplay, um, the significance of 
Good Samaritan philosophy. So I'm, 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 I'm thankful for Good Samaritan philosophy. But, but let's just first, let's just get shocked out of our minds for a second about how crazy it is to think that there's really such a thing as a Good Samaritan. In our context, and the context is, what must you do to gain eternal life? Keep the law. Samaritans don't meet the qualification. Just, just to shock us a little bit about how, how silly and how crazy this is, our misunderstanding of it, if we're historically and biblically informed, might we call the hospital good idolaters hospital? Because that's what Samaritans were, idolaters. The good idolaters hospital. Have a ring to it? How about good Bible rejectors orphanage? You're a Christian, you're going to start an orphanage? Commendable, learn principles from the Good Samaritan account. You're going to call it the good Bible rejectors orphanage? Because Samaritans, by definition, are Bible rejectors. Or how about this one? Good unsaved Jesus rejectors church. Good, unsaved, Jesus-rejectors, because that's what Samaritans are, church. Now, I, I think I'd be willing to send money and support an organization today that uses the title Good Samaritan because it has a different cultural meaning today. I'm okay with that. I suppose if Omaha Bible Church were called Good Samaritan Bible Church, I, I might push for a name change, though. I just know too much historically. Maybe you do, too. There's no such thing as a Good Samaritan. Samaritans are bad. And I'm belaboring the point because I really do want us to be shocked to the point of at least realizing what the passage isn't about. It isn't ultimately about it's good to be good. It's not ultimately about that because even the guy who does the good thing on on one occasion is defined by Jesus as somebody who isn't good. So let's have the philosophy of good Samaritanism. I'm, I'm thankful for it. It is good to be good. But let's not be unethical and have that be the ultimate point of this passage. Because the ultimate point of the passage in the context has to do with how to gain eternal life. And you have to keep the law perfectly to gain eternal life. And the Jews don't do that. And the Samaritans don't do that. Who in our passage does? Jesus. And now we're starting to sound like Christians. Jesus does. This man desiring to justify himself. Never going to happen. Keep the law perfectly? Uh-uh. Samaritans, they, haven't even, they, they, they can't keep the law perfectly because they reject so much of it. But there's somebody in our passage who's loved God with his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and he's loved his neighbor as himself. It's Jesus. If this passage doesn't serve its ultimate bigger purpose in the context of Luke, Old Testament, New Testament, if it doesn't serve its ultimate bigger purpose of showing us our guilt and our need for one who's not guilty, then we're unethical. Let's see it as we should see it in the context. A couple of passages for you to, to look at, if you would. One would be Romans 5. We already read it earlier this morning, intentionally so. The other one would be Titus chapter 3, verse 7. But I'm just doing a sampling. 
This is the good news. This is the gospel news. This is why this passage is, is actually in the Bible by divine intent. Because it's about how to gain eternal life. Romans chapter 5 verse 1 says, Therefore, since we, talking about Christians, have been justified, that's declared righteous, declared law keepers, declared people who have loved God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love neighbor as, as themselves, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And in the context of Romans 5, the faith is in whom? It's in Jesus. It's in Jesus. This is why the Bible speaks in terms of Christ, our righteousness. This is why it talks about, uh, quoting Jesus, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. We know what the law is. It's love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as, your, as yourself. It's so good, my friends. When we see the big picture, it's not do more, try harder. It's good to be good. Now get out there and be good. And if you can be good enough, God might accept you someday. That's not good. <laughs> Instead, to allow the passage in its context to, to show us we don't meet the qualification. By the way, if the ultimate purpose was just to make the point it's good to be good, we wouldn't need Jesus. It's true, it's good to be good. The problem is, according to Jesus in Mark chapter 10, you're not. And so, Christ our righteousness, Christ our law keeper, Christ is the one who did these things perfectly and so we are justified, declared righteous by faith, by trust in Him. It's awesome. It's awesome. The other passage I wanted to read was Titus because it uses our title, Eternal Life. So Paul is picking up on this very thing Jesus talked about in our passage. Titus 3, 7, so that being justified, we know what that means, declared a law keeper, and we know what the law teaches. Love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love neighbor as, himself, as yourself. So that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. There it is stated in no uncertain terms, right? How do you gain eternal life? Well, we know it's on, based upon law keeping, but we know that we don't keep the law. Even pagans around us illustrate the fact that they do things sometimes that we ourselves won't do. Justified by faith in Christ. Justified by faith in Christ. I haven't asked for a long time, so I'll ask it again. True or false? You have to be perfect to go to heaven. Trick question, right? It's true. It's absolutely true. Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Matthew chapter 5. Jesus, dealing with this guy who's an expert, who says, what must I do to gain eternal life? Jesus says, keep the law. Do this and live. How many of us would want to fail Jesus? 
I go, you didn't give the right answer. He totally gives the right answer. Because what that does is it slays all of us. It takes us all out at the knees. So we have to say, I can't do it. Perfection is required for heaven and there's no way I can do it. I've learned from this guy, I shouldn't be the guy, I'm going to justify myself. Who's my neighbor? Because as soon as we go down that road, I'm going to find an unbelieving cultist who you know, who sometimes on occasion does a better job loving neighbor as you do. And go, you're busted. Perfection is required. And so we trust in the perfect one. Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus Christ, our substitute. Jesus Christ, who fulfilled the law. Jesus Christ, the good one. Oh, yes! We worship Him because He's done this for us. It's extraordinary. It's amazing. It's awesome. Salvation requires keeping the law. Salvation requires perfection. We trust in the perfect one. So here, Pat, the unperfect one, the imperfect one, I know this is true based upon my experience, but more importantly, I know it's true based upon what God says. I stand before God acceptable with boldness, with confidence, and you can too because you're such a good Samaritan. Samaritans are bad. What are you thinking? Because Jesus... As a perfect law keeper, he meets your requirements. Isn't it good? So good. So good. A final question. How does the law of God relate to us? How does the law of God relate to us? It's a little bit out of the purview of what we're looking at, but it is related, and I think it could really help you to to crystallize and to summarize things. How is the law of God related to us? Our passage helps us to see, it should help us to see, that the law of God shows us our guilt. It shows us our guilt. We don't meet the requirement. Do this and live. I don't, so I die. Spiritually. Doesn't mean the law is bad. The law is good. God gave it to us to show us how to be truly self aware. <laughs> right? You want to be self aware? You need a good dose of law. Shows us our guilt. Galatians talks about this. It serves a good purpose. Then the law of God, showing us our guilt, helps us to see the solution in Christ according to God's grace because Jesus is the one who fulfilled the law. This is anything but illogical. And so then we see that the greatness of Christ and, and we see that he, he took care of our guilt problem and not only that, He provided the righteousness. He did that on our behalf. How about He's tempted to not do it by Satan. And, and unlike the first Adam, He doesn't fail. He succeeds and He keeps loving His Father with heart, soul, mind and strength because He does it on our behalf. And then we see the law of God is something that's not against us anymore because it's been fulfilled on our behalf and we see it as our good guide. Right? The law of God has always been good. Right? I mean, 
I'm not, I'm not playing a trick on you. Is it, has it always been good to love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength? As long as there's only ever been one God, that's been the case. That's always. But that was against us because of our problem. Now Christ took care of that for us. And now I'm no longer under this, this, this slaying of, uh, of, of the law of God. Now it's been taken care of. And now I say, I, I, I want to seek to love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength and love my neighbor as myself because of the good news of the gospel. And now, oh, by the way, I have the Spirit of God in me. And it's no longer this, this schoolmaster, taskmaster, slay me now because I can't do it. Christ has done it for me. God, how would you have me to express my gratitude? Treat me like I'm God. <laughs> love me with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. It's an expression of our gratitude. It's our, it's our guide. It's good. It's right. We're not throwing the law of God away now that Christ fulfilled it. It's a light unto our path. It's good. It's good. And so we can have our cake and eat it too. Here's what I mean by that. In our passage. It's good to be good. Just don't have that be the gospel. Have that in its right place. It is good to be good. It's good to love your neighbor. It's good to love God, right? <laughs> but but it, but it's vital and crucial that we get things in the right order. And and our context demands, I would suggest, it demands that the intent here first and foremost primarily is to show guilt so that we can see the need for Christ. But having Christ done His work, it's still true and right that you should love those who aren't like you. But your salvation isn't dependent upon it. And now as an act of gratitude, I have Christian ethics and I'll go to Luke chapter 10 every time. Because now I'm a Christian, I want to do the right thing and my salvation isn't dependent upon it. I'm still not going to call it Good Samaritan Bible Church because it's a contradiction in terms. But I want to have a Christian ethic informed by the Good Bad Samaritan. And I want you to as well. If you don't get this law thing and how it works, you're going to be totally confused. You're either going to become self-righteous or you're going to be totally defeated. You can't do anything. Always beat up. The law of God is here. We don't meet the requirement. It slays us. Guilt needs to be there. Christ provides graciously, fulfilling the law. And now on the other side, out of gratitude, we want to do the right thing. Got to get that. Gotta, 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 gotta get that. And you can leave here today praising God with confidence that it's not based upon your good Samaritanism. It's based upon Jesus' perfection, which motivates you to want to love people who aren't like you out of gratitude for what God has done for you because He loved you when you were opposed to Him and you were His enemy. Father, thank you so much for Jesus Christ, the righteous. Thank you so much that you've made these things clear in your word, and yet we are burdened to make them all the clearer to those around us. And we're confused sometimes, and we're confusing sometimes, and people around us are confused. This very day, give us opportunities to speak rightly about your law, to speak rightly about the gospel, to speak rightly about the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, for those who are here who sense no sense of guilt, may they know for sure that they're guilty.
And for those who are here, may they move beyond that and see the grace of Christ. And then want to serve you out of gratitude. Help us to keep our categories straight so that we can honor Jesus. In whose name we pray, amen. Thank you.